Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Spring is here. It has been many years since the spring has pulled at me like this one. Containment to avoid contagion has been wearing, and it's wonderful to have more time outdoors. Spring's this beckoning season anyway. Warmer temperatures and colors of greening and flowering call to those who live mostly indoors through the cold months. Now, some with severe allergies might rightfully ignore that call and stay indoors, but others widen their living spaces beyond the climate-controlled rooms and of houses and workspaces. For most of us, Welcoming weather expands the spirit as well. For those who are like me who like warmer weather, winter can make us feel caught in nature's cycle, fueling the survival instinct of counting days until the porch, deck, or patio becomes living space again. My guess is that if you were able to do a statistical analysis of daydreams of someone my age and with my preference for warmer temperatures— there would be found in the winter a higher percentage of retirement fantasies. I'm not saying the majority of daydreams, just more than the normal quota. But then spring hits and daydreams tilt dramatically to broader thoughts and hopes for the future, my own future, for the church, for the world, for the universe. As a minister who loves the church that I serve, my thoughts tilt to the grand possibilities of ministry that we can accomplish together. A hospital opening in the Dominican Republic, the AO House being renovated for mission use, a building here where classes and meals can take place again, and all the other ways that I imagine that we emerge from the pandemic as a church. A church that fills the intersection house with youth that gathers again for a family treat, that can fill this sanctuary on a Sunday morning while still having people join us for worship from places far afield. And of course, I'm thinking of my own future. I'm imagining losing weight, getting in better shape, and begin thinking not only of this summer's beach trip, but maybe even that trip in some future summer when Millie and I will finally get to see the Grand Canyon. For people like me, spring increases our appetite for all. All is what I want us to consider today. Because without all, I'm not really sure we know how to live in God's world. Think about that as I read our passages from Genesis and Mark. 
First, this single verse from Genesis, though it evokes the whole creation narrative. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And then this passage from the third chapter of Mark. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. The scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come forward. And then he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? to save life or to kill. But they were silent. He looked around them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and the hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All is surrender. There is in the moment of all the surrender of one's rights. It is to forget for a moment anyway the tally of accomplishments and grievances. Think of wide-eyed, jaw-dropped Job. His list of grievances dropped to the ground. On that list is the stark evidence of the raw deal that has been dealt him in life. He lost most of his land, his health, and most terribly his children, and for no good cause. He could blame fate, but as a devout man, he takes his case to God. Why, he asks, should this have happened to me as someone who has been as compassionate as I have been as someone who has led a good life, and, and by good life, I don't mean the high on the hog, rolling in the dough, being able to do what most people cannot afford to do, good life. I have lived the morally good life. I've been someone who has followed the guidance of Moses and lived in a way where others are helped and not harmed. Why have I suffered the kind of loss that one would hope for the Hitlers and the Jeffrey Dahmers of the world? if that's the kind of thing good people are allowed to hope for. Why? And as those of you who know the story of Job, as you know, he's not given an answer. But what he is given in a vision is a tour of God's creation. It's a sort of slideshow tour. It goes from one wonder of creation to the next. Job is given a vision of a world that has beauty, even with Job's pain, and a world that would have beauty even if Job were not in it. And Job, in that vision, in that moment, he's filled with awe, and for a while forgets not only his troubles, but forgets himself. And when he emerges from the vision, he realizes that the God who has created all that is also chose to create him even chose to have a conversation with him. He now has one desire, 
and that is to worship God. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him, is what he says. And from that moment on, Job lives toward what might be ahead instead of staying stuck in what was lost. Did you hear what Job said? Though he slay me, I will trust in him. That makes no sense, given what many hear in their churches. Avoiding God slaying us is what's supposed to be what motivates us to obey God, to live the good life. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we are told. It is the beginning even of faith, we believe. But that's not how it is with Job right now. Now, for Job, life is more precious than his life. And trusting God has now made bargaining with God seem ridiculous. Let's go back to that expression, the fear of the Lord. The word for fear is yurah. It can also mean awe. The two meanings, fear and awe, are far apart, even though it's the same word. Fear makes us afraid of what might happen, whereas awe, beckons us into the mystery, beckons us into the future. It is comparable to joy because we want more of it, or love because we want to be drawn near to those who we love. You know, I imagine if Millie and I ever do make that trip to the Grand Canyon, I'll have both experiences of your raw. Put me at the railing of one of those viewing platforms looking out over the vast chasm and I bet I feel fear, fear of falling to my death. But then I imagine after calming down and maybe with Millie holding my hand, when I take in the handiwork of the Colorado River where this swath has been cut through stone that is now as much as 6,000 feet deep, I imagine that I will be in awe then. It will be like seeing just one of those slides in the slideshow that God shows Job. And maybe I will even have Job's reaction of caring more that the canyon exists than I do. And caring that there is actually maybe, yes, one who created it. Now, of course, I don't really need to go see the Grand Canyon. All does not require a canyon. If you were to work your way through the slideshow in Job, you would see pictures or scenes of the canyons and storehouses of hail, but you would also see the marvel of the work ethic of ants, the power of the crocodile, and the intricacies of a hummingbird's wings and a spider's web. Abraham Heschel, perhaps the greatest rabbinic thinker of the 20th century, says that this sense of awe can be found anywhere and is needed because it's essential to faith. Because without awe, we remain stuck in the delusion that life begins and ends with us. We begin to think that the world and others are there for our use, maybe for our disposal. They are available to us for our mastery and domination, that places and people are to be mined for whatever valuable minerals we can claim for ourselves. 
The difference between awe and ownership can clearly be seen in how a single verse of Scripture has been interpreted over the centuries. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Listen to that verse without awe. And it's easy to conclude that, conclude what's been said too many times in American churches. We've been placed here to be in charge. All fish of the sea and birds of the air, all those animals that can be tamed and those that cannot, all the resources of the earth and all airspace over what we build and buy, it all belongs to us or to whatever ones of us can claim title and defend it. In a shocking misunderstanding of this passage, this all-less reading of the verse has been used as a mandate for the abuse of creation, or at least an excuse for it. Shocking when any translator of Hebrew would tell us that the Hebrew word for dominion does not mean to dominate or exploit, but rather to take responsibility for something and look out for its well-being. It is in this verse to be partners with the earth in the same kind of life-enhancing way that Adam is meant to partner with Eve. This verse, like all the verses of Genesis, or at least the Genesis story of creation, has no meaning except in light of the final command to observe the Sabbath. On the seventh day, we, like God, are to pause to remember that the earth is the Lord's and all that dwells therein. There is no room, Heschel says, for self-assertion. Within our all, we can only know that all that we own, we owe. Out of the stillness of all, then comes the moment of our lives when we go back into the world that is created and live. That's true worship, that the stop is to stir, to wonder is then to work, to forget is then to find, to rest is then to restore, to be still is to begin something new. And with this Sabbath perspective, we go back into each of the other six days of creation and realize that a question is really being asked of us each day. There are days and there are nights. How will we spend them? They're creatures of the air and of the ground. What is our relationship to them? There are others like us who are given to us. How do we treat them? Yes, we get the creation story so wrong when it becomes about our ownership and our control rather than about the wonder of God's realm and what a privilege, what a responsibility it is to live in God's realm. I would suggest that we get the Sabbath wrong when it also is treated without all. Consider our passage from Mark. You'll remember that the story ends with scribes and Pharisees along with Herodians plotting to have Jesus killed. They don't get to this point all in a moment. As with the day-by-day -day creation of God's world, there is this step-by-step -step creation of their desire to have the Son of God killed. 
not with awe, but with suspicion and rising anger. They've been watching Jesus growing in popularity in preaching and demonstrating a spirituality that is not according to their script and therefore is not under their control and beyond their ability to manage. First, Jesus has the audacity to not only heal a man's body, but also his soul in forgiving him of his sins. Why? The scribes and Pharisees ask themselves. They then see Jesus having table fellowship with Roman collaborators and others whose sins are just as bad in their eyes. Why, they then ask Jesus' disciples. They then see Jesus and his disciples forego fasting, which for them is not really anymore a spiritual practice of giving one's body a rest, but has become for them a test of piety. Why, they ask Jesus himself. Then they see Jesus and his disciples reaping grain on the Sabbath. Again, why? And then finally comes the moment of our passage. Jesus and his questioners are all in the synagogue together. They are standing in the moment of Sabbath. And there is this man with a withered hand. And the scribes and Pharisees, completely without awe over the miracle of body and soul healing and lacking compassion for those who hunger, watch to see if Jesus dishonors the Sabbath by working on it. And Jesus knows what they are doing. And he brings the man up front and center and asks a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And because for these scribes and Pharisees, faith is something they control rather than their practice of surrender, they refuse to say anything. Huh. Well, Jesus heals the man. And this story of the creation of their opposition ends on the seventh day as these scribes honor the Sabbath in the way they think it is honored. They work to plot to have Jesus killed. As a rabbi, Heschel was not in the habit of commenting on New Testament passages, but I think he would say that at the root of their murderous desire is the absence of all. They have no good answer for Jesus' question, for what purpose is the Sabbath? Do we? How will we honor the Sabbath in our living? Care of the earth is just one way in which we can answer that Sabbath question. It really involves about all of life, how we work and how we treat others. But because Earth Day was this past week, I think it is appropriate that I conclude with at least a nod in that direction. Winter is as important a season as any, so forgive me as I go back to the perspective of those who are like me, who long for the expansive world and outlook of spring. I would hope that we have what I'm only today going to call the winter view of creation. I won't dishonor winter again for a while. But I hope we don't have the winter view of creation where we take what we can in order to survive while we are alive and then not worry about it anymore. But instead, we have a spring view where our hopes and desires are pulled into the future 
where even future generations beyond our lifespan can thrive. I would like us to imagine Jesus standing here on a Sabbath Sunday and putting up here front and center of our chancel area the children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren not yet born and ask us if it is lawful that we act in their best interests or not. Pushing aside the plotting types like the scribes and Pharisees who only want to ask their questions in order to win an argument or being in control, I hope that any answer that we come up with begins with all. I hope a desire to do what we can for the care of the earth on behalf of those who might come later will come from the primal realization of all that what we own, we owe. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.